So let's open with a word of prayer. <clears throat> Father in heaven, thanks for your your abundant mercies to us and how you shower us with good gifts and your many blessings. We thank you for uh, life and breath and all things. They are gifts from you. And we thank you for bringing us here safely this morning. We thank you for the gift and the institution of marriage. And as we continue to study it together and study what your word says about it, we ask your blessing upon uh, our time in your word and our time in discussion and... Lord, as we uh, cover a very important and somewhat delicate topic this morning, we pray your blessing upon it and that, uh, and that uh, you would be honored, that Christ would be honored, and again, that we would give careful attention to your word and heed what it says to us. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. So, yes, the, uh, the inevitable is upon us. Uh, we're going to discuss the, uh, the topic of sex this morning as it relates to our overall study of marriage. I'll uh, just go ahead and say in advance a couple of things. Well, first of all, this is going to be a completely rated PG Sunday school class, okay? We're not going to uh, get into anything that I don't think will make anyone in- uncomfortable, so, so don't worry about that. <coughs> Uh, the other thing is, obviously, uh, John was even commenting uh, that, you know, just one page, right, on, on this s- subject, and I, I kind of deliberately kept it to one page, and so we're not going to get it into the weeds or into a lot of particulars, and so inherent with that is the fact that there's, as with all these topics, everyone we've considered and everyone we will consider, there's more to say than we're going to be able to say in, uh, in just one Sunday school class, but... Um, uh, <clears throat> this is an overview. You can see on your uh, on your outline, if you look at the Roman numerals there, we're going to be talking about uh, sexual ethics as defined by the Bible. Uh, and then we'll uh, briefly, and in a very general way, talk about how to deal with sexual problems in marriage. And then, um, and then dealing with sexual temptation. And that's probably... Well, no, it's all important, but dealing with sexual temptation is, is a real issue, and I think there are real answers for us in God's Word for that. Uh, up at the top of the um, page, I've got a couple of quotes. One's from R.C. Sproul, and this is very interesting. Uh, he said, of the, main problems, of the main problem areas of marriage, sex is far and away the number one problem. And he's saying that as a as a pastor and as a you know as a man who's got a lot of experience counseling, and then uh, Wayne Mack, whose material I've drawn drawn upon pretty heavily in preparation for all of these lessons, uh, he made this observation. A lawyer whom I interviewed told me that almost every couple who comes to him to get a divorce complains of sexual incompatibility. Okay, so. With that as kind of a, a, a kickoff point, let's first discuss the biblical doctrine of sex and of sexual ethics. Um, it's, I think it's fair to say that there are a lot of people out there that think that most of what the Bible has to say about sex isn't relative in our day and age. And that somehow uh, the, the context, the ancient context, uh, is not applicable to us. Um, <clears throat> how many of you have heard things like that? I'll tell you one specific um, area where people will make that case, and it has to do with the area of, sexu- of, of homosexuality. Because people will say, yeah, the Bible pro- prohibits homosexuality, but that was back when, in order to survive, civilizations need lots of people. They needed numbers, and they especially needed men to, to fight their battles and to work the fields, and, and that's why there was a prohibition. 
as if that was the whole basis of you know you can't have you, you can't be engaged in homosexual relationships because we need you to procreate we need you to to produce offspring and uh, and that's i've heard that argument um, so people will say that the bible is irrelevant when it comes to this issue or a topic of sex uh, or that uh, it, but but i will say uh, unapologetically that when the bible speaks uh, really with reference to anything relative to sex it speaks uh, with relevance in other words it applies it's useful for us and it speaks with authority because this is you know as uh, as we often say when we're getting ready to read the scriptures publicly this is the very word of god um and so yeah ignorant people People, and I don't mean that. I don't mean that as, as quite as disparaging or as it sounds. But people who don't know the scriptures often will malign what the scripture says about sex. And people who are uh, unbelieving, that um, they will mock and ridicule sexual ethics as they're presented in scripture. But um, because the scripture is the word of God, everything it says about everything is wise. And everything it says about everything is right, <clears throat> including what it says about sex. And you think about it, uh, God is our creator. We confess that every time we use the creed, right? We say, I believe in God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. And when we use the Nicene Creed, we speak of the fact that he made uh, everything that is. There's nothing that exists that wasn't made by God. And that includes me and you and our bodies and marriage. And if he's the one who created that, and if he's the inventor, as it were, of sex, and if he's the one who gave it to us as a gift, uh, if, if, we, if we're looking for a subject matter expert, God is the one. Okay? Um, so... Because he is the expert, and because he speaks about sex in his word, let's consider some uh, major, central, biblical principles about sexual relations. And the first is, at least as I've listed them here for you on the handout, the first is that sexual relations within marriage are holy and good. So turn with me to Hebrews. Pastor Mark preached on this text not very long ago. Hebrews 13. Here's where, as the writer is drawing to a close in this epistle, he starts to throw out lots of really um, poignant words of application, words of uh, exhortation. You know, how, how do we live the Christian life? So at the beginning of the chapter, he says, let brotherly love continue. Don't neglect to show hospitality to strangers. Verse 3, remember those who are in prison, as though in prison with them. And then verse 4, let marriage be held in honor among all, and let the marriage bed be undefiled. For God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. And I want to hone in on that phrase, let the marriage bed be undefiled. In other words, there's nothing unclean, there's nothing impure or unchaste about sexual relations when they, when they occur in the context of marriage. Marriage is holy, and it's good. Um, and... I, this idea, good is one thing and holy is another, they're not synonyms. And so when I say marriage is holy, uh, what, what's, 
somebody give me a definition of holy. What does it mean for something to be holy? Set apart. Set apart. There, that's, a, that's, a, that's a one major facet of the very definition of holiness. Now, holiness also refers to moral purity. And when we talk about pursuing holiness, when we talk about um, increasing in holiness, we're talking about becoming more and more like Christ, more and more conformed to God's word. God's commandments. Um, but then there's that aspect of it that's set apart. And I think that's very important as we talk about sex and as we think about sex because it's, it's, a, it's a very set-apart relationship and act for the husband and wife. And it's not something that we ought to discuss flippantly or casually or crassly outside of that relationship. Okay? So marriage is holy and it's good. Number two, pleasure in marital sex is not forbidden, but it's rather assumed. This is important. First um, Corinthians seven. Let's go there. Everybody, turn there, please. Um, <clears throat> several verses to look at and several uh, applications to make from them. First Corinthians chapter seven, starting in verse one. Now, concerning the matters about which you wrote. And now it's presumed he's, he's quoting a letter that the Corinthians had sent to him uh, in which they, they cited this statement, it is good for a man not to, touch a, not to have sexual relations with a woman. Um, close quote. Verse 2, But because of the temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman should have her own husband. The husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights, and likewise the wife to her husband. For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Do not deprive one another, except perhaps by agreement for a limited time. And we'll stop there for now because we're going to come back to verse 5. But um, you see, um, he's saying because of the temptation to sexual immorality... That's one of the reasons we have marriage, because there is this, to greater or lesser extent, in in every human being, this 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 desire, this appetite for that for satisfaction of that uh, sexual longing. So, because of that temptation, and because to to fulfill that desire outside of marriage is immoral, let every uh, man have his own wife, and let every woman have her own husband. And then he uh, talks about um, husbands giving wives their conjugal rights and vice versa. Um, and, you know, in far and away the majority of cases, you know, early in marriage, uh, there's lots of mutual interest and there's lots of sexual activity going on. Then it tapers off a little bit uh, as the years go by. Uh, the point being, there will be times when um, one member in the marriage is going to desire to have relations and the other isn't necessarily that interested at the moment. Um, but uh, that's what verse 3 is about. The husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights, likewise the wife to her husband. Meaning that there's something about the relationship that's enjoyable, something that's pleasurable. It fulfills a desire in the person. And that's good. That's the way God designed it. So, so the fact that there's a, a measure of enjoyment in, in sexual relations is, is not forbidden. In other words, it's not something we're supposed to get through uh, um, and, not, and that it's wrong to enjoy. 
No, far from that. Uh, God made it to be enjoyable. Conjugal, that's the, that's the marriage relationship. So that's, that's one way uh, the word to conju- conjugal is used. Yeah, just, it's just a reference. I'm sorry if I... Uh, did I say that or is it on the handout somewhere? Okay, so when I... It's what? In the verse. Oh, conjugal rights. Yeah, rights to sexual relations. <clears throat> um, now turn with me to Proverbs 5. I had a pastor friend, uh, still do, and he and his wife were talking at one point about the book of Song of Solomon, and she asked him something about, well, are you going to ever preach Song of Solomon? He said no. (laughs) And she says, are you telling me there's a part of God's word that you're not willing to preach? And and I think he skirted the issue. But you know, if you've read it, you know that there are some uh, things that are... almost be considered a little bit racy but um but hey uh proverbs uh, gives songs of song of solomon a run for its money in a couple of spots uh, including proverbs 5 starting in verse 18 let your fountain be blessed and rejoice with the wife of your youth a lovely deer a graceful doe let her breasts fill you at all times with delight be intoxicated always with her love now does that something sound like a process that you're just sort of supposed to go through stoically and you know let's get this over with no this is this is a, a relationship a physical interaction that's intended to be pleasurable okay so that's number 2 Number three, go back to 1 Corinthians 7. Number three, as we've seen already, uh, is that uh, our, our sexuality, that, that aspect of our beings, of our humanity, our sexuality exists for our partner's pleasure. That's what's being addressed in verse 4. The wife doesn't have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Now, this, this brings up some important principles when it comes to, you know, uh, how often to have relations, you know, and, and, and that kind of thing, because there has to be this, this meeting of the minds between the husband and wife because you've got to have both bodies for that relationship to take place but the one has authority over the other's body and vice versa so there has to be this mutual um, respect and, and um, uh, deference I guess you might say and we'll, we'll talk about that a little bit more but you see the point um, God made you a sexual creature but he did so for the benefit of your partner Number four, marital sexual relations. And I say marital, I, I was editing the handout this morning before I printed it, and I, um, I wanted to specify marital sexual relations. Okay? Marital sexual relations are to be regular and ongoing. And by that, what I mean is um, how often this takes place should be mutually determined by the couple. That's kind of what I was getting at with verse 4 of 1 Corinthians 7. Um, you know, a husband and a wife just need to be in agreement about that. And it's not going to be the same for every couple. And I think that's very important. And I'll stress that uh, in, in different ways as we go along today. Um, 
it doesn't say anywhere in Scripture how frequently this is supposed to take place. And that's because it's not going to be the same for every single couple, every couple. Um, uh, and it's just a matter of whatever works mutually for the couple. And um, there shouldn't be any kind of comparison from one married couple to another. Um, 1 Corinthians 7 speaks of periods of abstinence. Did you see that? Let's go back and read verse 5 in its entirety now. Okay, Verse 5 of 1 Corinthians 7. Do not deprive one another, except perhaps by agreement for a limited time that you may devote yourselves to prayer, but then come together again so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. All right, so... <clears throat> What what grounds, according to that verse, uh, does a couple have for saying um, that they're going to take a break? What's it for purposes of? Prayer. So evidently, uh, I think this probably relates somehow or another to some to fasting, perhaps. Like if 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 you decided, you know, I'm gonna, for the next three days, I'm going to fast and I'm going to pray about this or about that. And because I'll be uh, afflicting myself in that way and kind of de denying myself in a physical sense, um, uh, you're, you're also going to uh, abstain from sexual relations with your spouse. And scripture says, fine, do that by agreement, by agreement, but for a limited time, but then come together again, it says. Why? Well, because we have these appetites, and if we are, even on basis of, of some kind of uh, consecrated religious commitment, abstaining for a time, uh, Satan, if, if that goes on too long, you know, you may th you think you're being really, really holy, but Satan can use that against you. Satan can use um, and, and manipulate your ap appetites that way. So abstinence when it occurs should be temporary and it should be the exception to the norm and then uh, finally sex in marriage is not merely permitted but it commanded and I, the um, uh, I guess the big issue that 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 people have sometimes is you know if you grew up in the church or if you didn't grow up in the church but you grew up in a in an environment where um, uh, the the wrongness of sex outside of marriage was really, really heavily emphasized. Then, when a person gets married, then it's it's hard sometimes for some people to shed that that notion that this is bad, and they they're almost given the impression that the that relationship itself is somehow dirty, um, and and uh, you know unholy, and so they have a hard time kind of giving themselves over completely to their spouse once they're in a relationship where it's legal and where it's good and and commanded. Um, so let's remember that um, that uh, that God not only allows husbands and wives to to enjoy that physical uh, relationship, but it's it's commanded. We are to do that. Okay, so those are all in relation to sex within the marriage relationship. Going on, number five, sexual relations outside of marriage are sinful and they are displeasing to God. In fact, they're very uh, strongly displeasing to Him. And that includes, we'll, we'll talk about two, two scenarios or two categories uh, in which 
sexual relations can occur outside of marriage. The first would be premarital, uh, sometimes in scripture called fornication. It's, so that fornication is a word that just sort of distinguishes sexual immorality from uh, adultery, which is a which is another category of sexual immorality, but um, it involves sp- specific um, categories of people. Outside of, like, you got two people that are not married to each other, um, that, and, and they're not allowed to engage in sexual relations. It's, that's sin. So if you're still in 1 Corinthians, just turn back to chapter 6. <clears throat> And look at verse 18. Um, it says, flee from sexual immorality. That's really important, and that's going to come back up again when we talk about dealing with sexual temptation. But flee sexual immorality. It says, every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. And so it's talking about uh, sexual relations outside of that sanctioned and God-ordained relationship of marriage. Uh, Look with me then at uh, Galatians chapter 5. And uh, in verse 19, that's where Paul begins a multi- uh, verse multiverse he begins <laughs> a several verse exposition of works of the flesh and, and in the first verse, verse 19 he says now the works of the flesh are evident sexual immorality impurity, sensuality and, and the list goes on um, but you see there again that, that immoral sexual relations are, are not pleasing to God. They are forbidden by his word over and over again. Um, and then Ephesians 5, chapter, uh, chapter 5, verse 3. Uh, would somebody like to read that for us, please? Chapter 5, verse 3 of Ephesians. Thank you. Okay, now, some, some English versions will translate, at least in some places, uh, that word that we have in the ESV uh, translated as two words, sexual immorality. Some versions will use the term fornication, and that's just simply uh, sex outside of marriage. Um, and everything in our culture is, is going over time to try to persuade us that that's perfectly fine. Uh, you, you can hardly turn on a TV show or go to a movie where you don't have um, people having sex with each other, either implicitly or they just put it right there on the screen, um, and they're not married. And the really troubling thing about that, well, there's many things, of course, but the, I think the especially troubling aspect of it is a lot of times it's the hero of the story. It's the protagonist. And he or she may be really, really good and upright and and exemplary in every other way but then they end up in the sack with somebody they're in love with you know and we and that's portrayed to us as something that's fine and we've been getting this for decades in television on in the movies um but it's 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 a lie 
Yes. So, as a kid, like, like we talk about sex, but then, like, a lot of the times we were allowed to watch movies that have people having sex. And, like, what's a Christian perspective on, like, watching movies that's watching people have sex? Is that... Because, <coughs> uh, like, every single movie out there always has that they tend to, yeah. In fact, uh, yeah, you're right. And you bring up a good point. Uh, it's a difficult one because, um, uh, first of all, there are um, degrees to which that is portrayed on the screen. I mean, you can go to some movies um, where, I mean, it's just virtually pornography. They leave almost nothing to the imagination. Other movies, it's 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 much more implied. You know, you see the, the two, maybe they're in a bed and their covers are over them. You're not seeing body parts and things like that. Um, uh, I think it would be legalistic to say that Christians should not watch a movie where there's sex in it. However, I think Christians ought to be a lot more discerning about what they allow themselves to watch. And... Um, and a lot more thoughtful about what watching that will um, will where that will take their minds, you know. So I I, <clears throat> I would um, I would tend to advise against it generally. But then there of course there are also uh, aspects of that decision that relate to the maturity of the person. So like you know there there might be a movie that. Uh, that my wife and I would watch, uh, but that we certainly wouldn't want our young children to watch. Um, so I'm, I'm sorry if I'm, I know I'm being kind of noncommittal on that, and I hope nobody is, uh, is upset by that, but um, <clears throat> there's, a lot of, there's a lot of trash uh, in the movies and, and on TV, and it's just getting worse and worse. Um, I, don't, I don't think uh, it would be right to make a blanket prohibition for Christians against any media that that portray it, but I think it seems to me that if you're going to tell Christians they can't watch anything that has any type of sexual in it, then how are you going to let them murder? Yeah, that's a good point too. You make a good point. You make a very good point. And I think um, <clears throat> our willingness to... Because we're talking about literature, right? And the Bible has murder in it. The Bible has sexual immorality in it. The Bible is very... Well, obviously it's God-breathed scripture. So what it's, it communicates what it communicates to us for a reason and for our instruction. Um, <clears throat> the... Um, uh, I guess the question a lot of times for Christians is, okay, is this portrayal of whatever kind of sin it is, is it gratuitous? I mean, is it just putting, putting it out there for entertainment value? Or is there some um, literary purpose behind it? Um, you know, to kill, uh, what was the, um, of mice and men? There was a murder, in the, or, or you know, death takes place in that. And um, but it, it's 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 a great work of American literature, and it's portrayed for a reason. Were you going to say something? I think in movies, I 
put stuff in there to get a better writing, because who wants to go see a G movie? Or even a PG-13 movie, they want that R movie. And a lot of times, you can pair not watch movies when we like They didn't need to say that word. It mm. didn't make it any better, it just made it help. Yeah. You just don't always need it, but they put it in there, you're right, you're right. So I guess the, the, the bottom line issue is, is we need to be discerning and know your own heart. And, uh, and you know, and there, I mean, somewhere in there, there's a line, uh, but there's a lot of gray area in the middle, and we just have to discern. A bounce guy heard, I forgot exactly how it was phrased, but there's a point when it's not acting, they're actually sinning by acting out whatever it is, if they're really showing to people you know, having sex, that's not acting anymore, so like, that is a boundary I've heard, like, when they're actually sinning, that kind of crosses the line of insinuating something. Yeah. Yep. So one point is, I think at some point, you can be desensitized by this, so you watch, watch yourself not becoming like, how oh, you really whacked him or something, you know, and it's like, oh, good. Yeah. All right. Yeah. Thank you for that input. Uh, let's continue. <clears throat> um, under number five, sexual relations outside of marriage are sinful, categorically, and they're displeasing to God. Uh, we talked about premarital and then extramarital, which would be adultery. And that happens uh, anytime a married person enters into that relationship with someone else, whether the other person is married or not. So Exodus twenty fourteen. can anybody quote that for me? You shall not commit adultery. That's right. Leviticus 20.10 is interesting. Turn there with me. <clears throat> so, the only, like, I've read it on like that, but um, in Leviticus it does give laws of, like, the Old Testament laws of, like, virginity and all that. Is this to apply to those, like, because the argument with all this crazy LGBTQ stuff is, like, those don't apply to today. Right. Yeah, we we talked about that a little bit at the beginning, and there are things in um, in the Pentateuch and elsewhere in the Old Testament that don't uh, that don't apply literally to us in the sense that if if it's God, if it's an expression of God's moral will, it's always applicable because it's always an expression of His character. But you've got things like, uh, well, all the animal sacrifices and all the washings and the ritual uh, cleansings and stuff that, that don't apply to us. Why? Because they all really were kind of a, um, a, a preview of what Christ was actually going to accomplish on the cross. And when He came as our Lamb and was the perfect sacrifice that actually did take away sins, then all that, all that ceremonial aspect of the Old Testament uh, is fulfilled in Him and is no longer necessary. In fact, to observe it anymore would actually be dishonoring to Him, because we have a perfect sacrifice. He's been, he's he's died for us, and He was raised. So, I, and I admit that there there are sometimes possibly difficulties in discerning. Well, is this still applicable or isn't it? If it, even if it's not, there's usually a principle behind it that we can apply and, and can be instructed to us. But um, uh, Leviticus twenty ten, you know, we might have actually an opportunity to. Uh, uh, to parse some of that right here. Leviticus 20.10 says, If a man commits adultery with the wife of his neighbor, both the adulterer and the adulteress shall surely be put to death. 
A couple things we take from that verse. First, it shows us how much God hates adultery. Okay, how serious a sin it is. Um, secondly, it shows us that, that both parties are guilty. Um, in other words, you know, when, those, when people brought to Jesus the woman caught in adultery, you have to ask, well, where's the guy? Why didn't they bring him? He's guilty too. Um, then the other thing is, we in the United States of America, I don't know of any nation <clears throat> in in. The, in Western civilization that has the death penalty for adultery. So, um, and there are reasons for that. <clears throat> but uh, we, we, we don't execute people for adultery. That particular aspect of the law was, was a civil law for the people of Israel when they were a nation um, in, in, in those days. Uh, and then uh, Matthew 5, 27 and 28... If somebody's there already and would like to read it for us, please do. I'll go ahead and read it. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. So, so what, G... Hmm? Okay, I don't... So he said he had committed adultery. He lusted that whole woman. Oh, uh, okay. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> so, um, so Jesus shows us, uh, and, and really you, you find this in the Old Testament too, but, but Jesus comes and makes very clear and, and reiterates and reminds his people that the law isn't just external. It's not just a set of outward rules that if you, you know, cross your T's and dot your I's, you're good to go. And uh, he, he says adultery goes a lot deeper than simply committing the act physically. He says if a man is looking at a woman and he's looking at her with lustful intent, adultery has already taken place inwardly. Well, no, that, that's a good question. And I think... Um, Here's the deal. I, I had a friend years ago who, who said uh, uh, something along the lines of, um, it's the second look, you know, because God made us to appreciate all kinds of aesthetics, right? Beauty. He made us to appreciate and recognize beauty. So people drive by this church and they say, wow, that is a beautiful building. You know, and people come in and say, hey, we want to get married in your church. It's lovely. You know, people can recognize things that are attractive and beautiful. And, and that's the way God made us. Praise the Lord. That's why we have art. That's why, um, that's why we, that's why, well, I won't go there uh, talking about East and West uh, Germany. <laughs> but, uh, um, uh, so, that aesthetic reaction that we have to something that's beautiful, like a sunset or a lovely mountain range, also occurs when we see people who are attractive. And that's natural and that's normal, you know. Um, but what my, the point my friend was trying to make those years ago was, you know, if, if a beautiful woman walks in the door, there's, it's inevitable that, that men are going to notice. Women are going to notice too. Right? I mean, you know, women know when another woman is attractive. Um, uh, the thing is, okay, I look, I see uh, that's a very attractive woman, and then I go right back to whatever it was I was doing. Rather than gawking at her, or looking back at her again, and, and, and undressing her in my mind, and that kind of thing. 
That's the difference. But we can appreciate beauty. I mean, they put pictures of, of really attractive people on the covers of magazines, right? Models. Uh, y you recognize that th th there's beauty there. Um, so sexual relations outside of marriage are displeasing and sinful. And adultery, I want to stress this again, uh, we won't go to Deuteronomy 5.18. That's this, when, when the whole Decalogue, the Ten Commandments, are given again in Deuteronomy. And verse 18 of chapter 5 is where it says once again, you shall not commit adultery. But go to Proverbs with me again, Proverbs 6. And in uh, verse 32, it says, He who commits adultery lacks sense. He who does it destroys himself. You know, and it kind of rings a bell uh, when we, since we just uh, looked at uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 6, where it talked about the, the, the person who's sexually immoral sins against his own body. And that's the point. Part of the point that the writer of Proverbs is making here. Now, if you've read the book of Proverbs, how many of you have read the whole book of Proverbs? Okay, great. When you get to chapter 10, that's where Proverbs sort of becomes these mostly uh, one-verse statements. What one of my professors used to call the bumper sticker sayings in Proverbs. You know, and from chapter 10 almost to the end, it's just like that. Each verse is almost self-contained, and it contains, you know, and, and presents some uh, wisdom statement for us. But the first nine chapters are much more extended um, treatises, and I'm amazed, you know, in some of my recent readings of Proverbs, how frequently this issue of adultery comes up and, and sexual immorality. It's like, you know, the writer of the Proverbs, he's writing to his son, right? This is the wisdom of a father to a son, and how many times in the first nine chapters does he warn him against adultery? We saw that in one verse in chapter 6, but that's what the entire seventh chapter is about. The whole chapter. And then uh, verse, uh, you've got it again in, in chapter 8 to some extent, and then again in chapter 9. So you see how, how central an issue this is in the mind of our God, that, uh, that adultery is a grievous sin. And here's why adultery is such a grievous sin. Not only is it sexual immorality, which is sin in and of itself, but when adultery occurs, it's a breaking of marriage vows. Two people swear before God and witnesses that they're going to be faithful to one another, forsaking all others. And then when adultery occurs, that those vows are broken. So there's that. And then um, we find that in uh, Ephesians chapter 5, that the marriage relationship is this beautiful picture. It's a, it, it represents the relationship of Christ and His church. And when adultery occurs, it, it, uh, it mocks that, that imagery, that, that uh, picture, and it dishonors Christ and His church. Now, I say all that, and I want to stress it, but I also then want to go ahead and stress number seven, and that is, adultery is not unforgivable. Very important. Adultery is not the unforgivable sin. In fact, uh, Jesus said in Matthew twelve thirty one, all kinds of sins, every kind of sin, will be forgiven men. Steve, is there another way of saying that, that adultery is forgivable? Yes. So, but adultery is one of the cardinal sins, you know, in... 
Ten Commandments. So, how is it forgivable if it's a a prominent sin? Well, you could ask the same question about any of the others, right? Um, Yeah. Uh, Well, the answer is through the blood of Jesus Christ, whose blood was shed to to for the forgiveness of sins. Um, And what and it's kind of what you know. Although it's not explicit in this verse from Matthew 12, um, we know how how that works. Uh, Matthew 12 verse 31, Jesus says, uh, "I tell you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven people." Uh, and we could insert the parenthetical comment if we wanted to, people who have trusted in Christ for that salvation and for that forgiveness. Every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven people, but the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven. We don't have time to go into what that is. That can be another lesson, perhaps. But um, anyway, he said, every sin and every blasphemy, blasphemy. He's saying people who blaspheme God can be forgiven. Amazing. And if that's true, then adultery is not a sin that has no forgiveness. Jesus' blood was sufficient to forgive adulterers as well as murderers as well as idolaters. Um, John chapter 8, I'm going to have to rush here because we're running out of time. Um, John chapter 8 is the passage about the woman caught in adultery, right? They bring her to Jesus and they, they cite the law of Moses and they ask Jesus what he thinks that they should do. They're trying to trap him. Um, and what he says to the woman after, you know, he, he, he answers them very masterfully, of course, and then they all leave. And then he talks to the woman briefly. And, um, and then um, he says to her in verse 11, uh, Neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on sin no more. She was caught in adultery. And Jesus says, your sins are forgiven. Uh, One more on that. Uh, And this is, you know, if any of you kind of still, uh, if if you've committed adultery in the past, and I don't want to know, don't raise your hands. It's not the purpose of this class. Um, But if if, if you carry with you, carry in your heart the guilt of that sin, listen to this. 1 Corinthians 6. Verse, starting in verse 9. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. So adultery can be forgiven in Christ. What verse is that? That's uh, 1 Corinthians 6, verses 9 through 11. Yeah, it's a great passage to use if, you're, if you yourself or if someone you know is, is struggling under the burden of guilt of past sins. You, if you know that they have turned to Christ and they're, uh, they're, they're, they're trusting in Him, but they're still burdened in that way, this is a wonderful verse of, of assurance. All right, um, Roman numeral two, dealing with sexual problems in marriage. Uh, one important thing: this is not this is this is very this is the shortest paragraph on the outline. Obviously, we're not going to solve everybody's problems today. Probably won't solve anybody's problems today. But uh, know that um, other problems in marriage, of which there are many kinds, right? Other problems in marriage often lead to sexual problems because there's a conflict about one thing or other, and then that affects the sex life. 
what are some examples of underlying difficulties that can do that? Well, you, there can be issues of fear of different kinds, anger, resentment, worry, guilt, just simple physical fatigue, and that's not an exhaustive list, but things like that can lead to sexual problems. And so the answer in that case, at least a step to take, would be to use some of these principles that we've been talking about in some of the other, other lessons, right? We did three sessions on communication. We deliberately did three. Uh, we did two on finances, but that's because we ran out of time. But I intentionally planned three lessons on this whole issue of communication. And then we did a session on conflict resolution. Apply those principles and address whatever the issues of resentment or guilt or anger are. And then often, not in every case, and not perfectly, not totally necessarily, but that will often help to resolve the sexual problems, if there are some. Sometimes sexual problems are medical. Um, in my uh, years as a pastor, and somewhat limited amount of counseling that I've done, I haven't really dealt with a whole lot of uh, these issues, but I'm told by people that have tremendous experience in it that actual medical issues that are leading to sexual problems are comparatively rare. Um, but there is help and there's of a medical uh, sort when, when those exist. Let me close in these last few minutes um, about uh, dealing with sexual temptation. And I think this is, I think if we think, if, if we, if we uh, have a correct understanding of the nature of temptation and of sexual temptation, that's a big step in the right direction of dealing with it. Okay, and so I start out by saying all temptation is ultimately a lie of Satan that our flesh believes, whether it's sexual or any other kind. And it started in the garden, and um, as uh, I quoted David Murray as having, saying, uh, having said, how much will you lose if you follow Jesus? That's the devil's favorite question. So he came to Eve and said, did God really say that you can't eat of any of the trees of the garden? And then Eve dialogues with him, and she explains, no, that's not what he said, but he did say this, and, and Satan says, you will not surely die. God knows. You know how he goes on to say, what he was essentially saying is God is holding out on you, and there's more to be had, more for you to enjoy, but he's keeping it back from you. That's the lie of Satan. And all temptation really comes down to that. And so I say, and I don't mean to minimize the, the struggle, but in that respect, sexual, temp sexual temptation is just like every other. You know, the beautiful woman walks in, and there's a guy sitting there thinking, man, my life would be so much better if I could be with her. That's a lie. And our flesh believes it. Um, so Christians have to resolve. I mean, it really needs to be a, 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 a deliberate act of resolution on our part to, to resist and to, to, to not admit, uh, give any... any um, any room to sexual tempta temptation. Um, it almost never comes unexpectedly. I cited 2 Samuel 11, 1 and 2. I could almost quote it, and maybe some of you could too, not because you tried to memorize it, but because you've read it so many times. It says, in the, in, in the spring of the year when kings go out to war, the armies of Israel were out at war, but where was David, the king? It says in verse 1, that's when kings... Kings, David, calling David. Kings go out to war. David's back in Jerusalem, just taking it easy. And that's when he's out on his roof and he sees 
the woman. Um, so sexual temptation and, and, and particularly just the, you know, all out sexual sin, it doesn't just come on us like a thief in the night. It doesn't just overcome us and, oh, wow, I just committed adultery and I didn't even see it coming. Um, that doesn't happen. I'll give you a couple of references there from Proverbs to, to kind of support that. Uh, Proverbs, I send you back to Proverbs 7 because it kind of gives a, uh, uh, a, a narrative, an account of a young man. He, he wasn't where he was supposed to be. And that's how he ended up in the compromising situation. Uh, marital vows are not conditional or flexible. Uh, our time is, is past, so um, maybe, I'm not sure how we'll do We We should go through this, because I think really the, a, a very, very important aspect of this whole discussion is, is dealing with sexual temptation. And uh, so maybe next time we're together in this context, we'll... we'll come back and touch on those because I think uh, by the power of the spirit we can resist sexual temptation and we must it's not an option uh, so we should spend a little bit more time talking about it and finishing out this um, this uh, lesson but thank you for your patience and thank you for uh, sitting through topic that might have been a little bit uncomfortable and uh, I appreciate all of you let's close in prayer Father in heaven thank you for the Holy Spirit your gift of the Spirit to, to be with us and to dwell in us. And we pray for His power uh, and that you give us, through His influence, uh, the discipline to flee from sexual immorality. Lord, not to, not to tolerate it, not to, uh, to flirt with it, but to run. Uh, help us to earnestly and eagerly seek purity and uprightness to be faithful to our spouses and uh, for the singles among us, Lord, to, for them to have self-control and to keep themselves pure as they await uh, your provision for them. And uh, Lord, we pray all these things and also ask now that as we get ready to join together in the other room uh, in worship with our brothers and sisters, that you'll be in our midst and that you'll help us, Lord, to worship you in spirit and in truth. And we ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you.